In this passage, we'll get an inside look at Christian affection. Christian affection. Something that we got a glimpse of in verses 3 through 5, but tonight we will examine in full display the heart of Christian love that we are to have toward one another. Let's begin by reading our passage. Uh, Let's begin in verse 3 for context, and we'll read all the way through verse 11. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Paul, the apostle, writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In our passage for tonight, verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Pray with me, Father, thank you for your word. Would you speak even now from your word and through your spirit, would our lives be changed to have a, a, an affection, a Christian affection that would have a strengthening and unifying power in your people. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by asking you, when's the last time that you struggled to love other Christians? When's the last time that you had a conflict with somebody, or you had a disagreement with somebody, or you didn't see eye to eye with somebody? Or maybe, when was the last time you felt a lack of love from somebody else. Uh, Maybe it wasn't quite as situational. Maybe for some of you guys who are new, it was a few weeks ago when you were still trying to find your way into this group. You felt maybe a lack of love when you couldn't find AFF or something like that. When was the last time that you either felt like you you failed in your love for somebody or you felt that same way about somebody else's love for you? What was the situation? What was the occasion? I think sometimes these situations, whether it's your fault or the other person's fault, sometimes these situations are purely circumstantial. Sometimes it's because you're new. Other times it's a result of sin or something somebody says or does or doesn't say or doesn't do. At some point in these situations, there is a failure on somebody's part, whether a neglect or something our ministry didn't think of that we could have done better, or a situation of sin. There is a failure in our responsibility, whether yours or somebody else's, to love. A 
failure to love. Our pastor, Pastor John, says this about a broad variety of things, but he said one time in in an interview, he said, every problem in our church can be traced back, ultimately, to a failure to love. Every problem in our church can be traced back, ultimately, to a failure to love. It really simplifies and changes some things if you think about it that way. The Christian life is a life dedicated to the love of the brethren. We are called to, in our testimony to the world, love one another. And that's how people will know that we are disciples. And so the question is, when those situations happen, uh, how do we turn the course? How do we change the pace? How do we get to where uh, the failure turns into obedience and dedication to the love that we are called to? How do we go whether it's our fault or the other person's, how do we go from new and unfamiliar maybe to plugged in and familiar and connected and loved and loving others? How do we go when our hearts are distant and cold from distant and cold to warm and close with others? How do we go from even judgmental and somehow always finding yourself to be the stronger brother in every situation? to what Romans 14 calls welcoming others in and pursuing what makes for peace and upbuilding? How do we go from feeling judged, maybe if we're on the other side, or marginalized and therefore isolated, to being in fellowship and relationship, learning to give the very grace that you are expecting from others to others and giving it generously? How do we go from lone ranger Christian, doing our own thing, to a band of brothers and sisters in Christ? How do we go from solo to tight-knit family, from being at arm's length to full embrace? I believe the key to our responsibility to love one another and to being loved by others is what we see in our passage tonight. And it's Christian affection. Christian affection affection. In this text, in this passage, Paul shows us the nature of Christian affection, where it comes from, what it is, how we can cultivate it, and the tremendous unifying, strengthening effect it can have in our lives and in the lives of those around us in Christ. Christian affection, as we'll see, is right thinking and feeling about other Christians in light of God's grace. And I believe we'll be pleasantly surprised tonight to see that the warmth of Christian affection takes the frost off of the engine of our hearts when it's most cold. Uh, I believe we'll be surprised that it, it focuses the binoculars just a little bit so we can see rightly for the person across the room. I believe we'll be surprised that Christian affection recalibrates the color in our pictures and in our images just a little bit of other people. It resets the ram, so to speak, on our capacity to love. 
And so I believe our, in our text tonight, uh, we will see great help as to the integral and essential nature of Christian affection to the Christian life. And we'll see this truth as its core. Uh, those who have truly experienced God's grace grow in affection for one another, which strengthens and unifies God's people. Those who have truly experienced God's grace grow in affection for one another, which strengthens and unifies God's people. And so in order to grow in this affection for one another, we must first understand it, what it is, where it comes from, what it consists of, and what effect it can have. Let's look at the nature of Christian affection under four headings. The nature of Christian affection. And the first heading is this, the soil of Christian affection. The soil of Christian affection in verse 7. Where does the gospel fruit of love toward one another grow? What kind of terrain or soil or nutrients are necessary for this Christian affection, this right thinking and feeling about others, where does this grow? What is necessary? What environs does Christian affection take to sprout and mature? In college, I was an amateur avocado farmer. We would have burrito night as an apartment as some of you guys do. And burrito night means avocados. And avocados mean avocado seeds. And when you have seeds, and you're a dude in college with a lot of homework, you tend to gravitate toward avocado seeds. And of course, you you plant an avocado plant, you Google the thing up, and you always, because you always have one, because they all die, You always name it Avi. Well, one of the early lessons of amateur avocado farming, which is really just Googling, is that you need the right kind of soil for an avocado plant to grow. Well aerated, this is Google, loose soil that is slightly acidic with good drainage, consisting of decomposed granite, bark, Perlite, sandy loam, sounds like a weird name, limestone. It turns out that's pretty much just normal potting soil. Here in verse 7 of our text, Paul is saying similarly, the proper soil for Christian affection, the only necessary nutrients for Christian affection to grow are the common experience of the grace of God in salvation and the sharing of ministry in and around that common grace found in Christ. That's it. That's all is required. That grace that is a shared experience for believers, and the ministry that grows in and around that grace. That's all that's needed for Christian affection. Look back at that verse. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For, often understood as because, you are all partakers of, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul holds these 
believers in his heart simply because they are fellow partakers in grace. They, like Paul, have been saved by the sovereign grace of God, and he has brought them to himself, and he has brought Paul to himself, and Paul says, simply because of that fact, I hold you in my heart. I have affection for you. Paul is saying here, where there is the soil of grace, Christian affection will indeed sprout. It's natural, it's expected to find this species of Christian affection amongst those who know God's grace savingly. Uh, Paul is saying it is right, it is natural, it is fitting for him to feel this way. Some translations translate this feel this way, as think this way. If you have a NASB, you see that. Uh, To feel or to think this way. This word actually is used ten different times in Philippians. It it becomes somewhat of a key concept for Paul's instruction to these believers. Uh, This word means to think or to have a mindset or to feel is part of the emotional aspect of one's thinking in the ancient world. Uh, Look at chapter 2, verse 2, and we see this word used twice in in 2, verse 2. Paul says, There complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. So those two words, uh, phrases of the same mind and of one mind are of this same root word. Uh, to think or to feel. And he's saying here, think of the same mind. Think of a singular mind. In chapter 2, verse 5, we see it again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Uh, Look at chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And then in verse 19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. This word is used in chapter 3 to compare two different ways of living. A way of living where you're thinking, using your mind rightly, and then in verse 19 where you're thinking and using your mind to think about yourself and your own flesh, your own belly in this case. In chapter 4, verse 2, Paul uses this word, to instruct Euodia and Syntyche, uh, these two sisters in the Lord who are not agreeing to be of the same mind in the Lord, he says. And so in our passage tonight, chapter 1, verse 7, Paul is speaking of a mindset, a mentality, a disposition, you could say. It's not just feelings, as you might think when you read the ESV, Uh, or just a way of thinking, if you read the Legacy Standard, uh, thinking and feeling together, a holistic look, an entirety of one's disposition. And so this is what we mean by Christian affection. It involves not only how we feel, but how we think about somebody, or uh, how we decide to regard somebody in our view. The Philippians have had Paul's back throughout his ministry and imprisonments and 
having supported him and supplied for his physical needs. We see that in chapter 4, verse 14. It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Paul's grateful for their partnership. And here in this first century era of gospel progress, Paul is an apostle. It's, he's part of what Ephesians 2.20 calls the foundation of the household of God. He, he's helping establish the gospel. And so what Paul is attesting to here in chapter 1, verse 7 of Philippians is that not only have the Philippian believers su- supported and served him, but by supporting him, they have supported the defense and the confirmation of the gospel itself. The, the Philippians are fellow partakers of grace in the sense of their common faith, they're being saved by the grace of God, but also, the way Paul sees it here, ultimately, they have partaken in the establishment of the gospel itself. And Paul says, it is only right then for me to think of you this way, for me to see you this way, for me to feel about you in this way. First century gospel establishment or 21st century gospel progress where there is the soil of grace and gospel partnership growing up around it, Christian affection sprouts. We often more readily and more primarily find common ground and affection around other things. I mean, it's being from the Bay or Chem Lab or hating the Astros. We find common ground in anything and everything around this instead of this. We find common identity in what we eat and what we study and how much we lift. And I think it's because our mindset, our affections are not driven by, they're not directed by the gratitude we ought to have for the grace found in the gospel. We don't have the right soil, so to speak. We are instead driven by our hobbies and hometowns, our commonalities and our course load, and those are fine and good. Have those affinities. But my prayer, Grace on Campus, is that we see the soil of Christian affection that is the grace of God. And that we cultivate this mindset, this disposition toward each other to look to give and receive this sort of pure, straightforward love rooted simply in the gospel. Where there is fertile ground of gospel acceptance and the camaraderie of that labor in the gospel, affection and affinity ought to spring forth. Love between brothers and sisters in Christ ought to be commonplace there. It is, in Paul's mind, right. It is fitting that those who are fellow partakers of grace, humble recipients of the unmerited favor of God, adopted sons and daughters, given the inheritance of his riches of mercy in Christ Jesus, it should be natural and normal for us to have this affection for one another in light of these truths, to hold one another in our hearts. In fact, the scriptures say 
it's a sign of life. It's a demonstration of Christian vitality if you have love for your brother. Turn over to 1 John and we see that. Just one of many places where uh, we, are see, we see in the scriptures that uh, love for one another is native to the Christian faith. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, must also love his brother. If nothing else, we have the command of the Lord Jesus Christ in John 13 and 15, echoed by 1 John, that we ought to love one another. It's a demonstration of the fact that we know Jesus, and we all do, and therefore we love one another. But Philippians 1 shows us that that kind of love isn't just because there's a command in the Bible, if that weren't enough already. It's because it is right, it is fitting for Christians to have affection for one another. Christian affection is rooted in the soil of gospel grace. That's the soil of Christian affection. Next, as we look at the nature of Christian affection, we need to look at, secondly here, the substance of Christian affection. The substance of Christian affection. We see that in Philippians 1, verse 8. This is to ask the question, what exactly is this affection? What does it consist of? Conceptually? Spiritually? What is its Substance. What is it made of? I think when we think of Christian love and unity and affection, we sometimes feel pressured by our responsibility to love others. And I think our defense mechanism can tend to kick in. I think it's because most of the time, if we're honest, in the love of one another category, we're net negative we can more quickly think of the last conflict or the last disagreement we had with others before we can think of the last time where we loved someone else well. And so when these passages in Scripture confront us or somebody encourages us and challenges us to love other people, we think affection, love, that seems so beyond us at times. And I think when we're confronted in that way, it puts us in a place where we feel the need to manufacture feelings, affections for other people. And so this affection is something we feel like we need to conjure up and come up with in and of ourselves somehow. And it puts us in a place where we're pressured. Well, Paul here brings us comfort and clarity as he shows us the substance of Christian affection. Look at verse 8. 
For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul calls God himself as witness to stand. You see, just as sure as he was in verse 6, in God, that God will finish the work that he has begun in every believer, Paul is here in verse 8, sure of the genuineness of his love for the Philippian believers because his affection flows from God's work in his own life and the apparent obvious work of God in the lives of the Philippian believers. And so Paul is sure of his own affection for these believers because he is sure of God and his work. In fact, we could say that God himself is the source of Christian affection. Paul knows because God is the God of all grace, yes, creator of all things, and spiritually speaking, creator of the soil of Christian affection. God is the originator of grace. And even we could say, it might be getting ahead of ourselves in terms of verse 9 and on, but God is Paul's witness because in the very next verse, Paul, in his deep affections for these believers, he prays, and he prays to who? To God. And so God is Paul's witness in this because Paul is sure of God's work, but also because Paul has literally been on his knees in prayer to God. And so Paul knows that God knows. Paul yearns for, he longs for these brothers and sisters with an affection, is the word that's used here in the English. It's this word, splanknon. It's, it's a nice word. It's literally the inward parts, the intestines, the entrails. In ancient Near Eastern thinking, it was the very seat of, of the emotions. It's what we would say as the heart of hearts. It's a little lower down. It's the innermost. It's the deepest part of your heart or your soul. And so Paul is saying here, he longs for these believers with an affection or with the splanknon, the intestines, the entrails of Christ Jesus. You see, this is more than just Paul stuck in a Roman prison, being sappy about his old friends in the gospel. Paul is saying the, the innards, the entrails, the guts of the kind of love he has for these Philippian believers and that we are to have for one another is of the very same substance, the very same stuff of the love of Christ Jesus himself. And so Christian affection the, the love we are to have for one another, the right thinking we are to have for one another, the right feeling we are to have for one another is a participation in uh, and a reflection of the very same affection that Jesus has for us. The compassion of our Lord is evident all throughout Scripture, all throughout the Gospels especially. Before Jesus raises the widow's son in Luke 7, it says the Lord saw her. He had compassion on her. In Matthew 9, 36, Jesus sees the crowds, and it says he had compassion 
for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14 paints the image where Jesus sees a large crowd and he feels compassion for them and he heals their sick. Matthew 20, that Jesus is moved with compassion. Another familiar passage, John 13, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then just later that night in John 15, this is my commandment, that you love one another. And Jesus says, as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. And he did just that. Jesus, in his love for us, even while we were still sinners, laid down his life for us, for his friends. This is the greatest love. And this is the kind of love, the same substance of the affection that we are to have for one another. Just recently, a couple weeks ago, there was a rather tension-filled moment that went viral. It was at an Ohio fishing tournament, of all places, and they were fishing for walleyes, a species of fish. One of the teams brought their catch for a final weigh-in, and their fish weighed a suspicious number of pounds heavier than the rest of the competition. Now, to you and me, a fish looks like a fish, looks like a fish, but to fisher, mm, fishing professionals, fishermen who are professionals, you can tell very quickly how much a fish probably weighs just by looking at it. And these fish did not look like they weighed what the scale said. Upon further inspection, the tournament director cut the fish open and over a hundred ounces of lead weights and pieces of walleye fillet, so dead walleye cut up, were removed from inside these five fish. These words will go down in history. The tournament director shouted out the now infamous words that have become a meme and have taken the internet by storm. We got weights in fish. And you can imagine the scene. Fishermen, as docile as they may seem, get pretty angry. Now, that's a study break for another time. I recommend turning the volume down if you seek the video out. But at the center of this crazy ordeal in the middle of nowhere, Ohio, sorry if you're from Ohio, is the simple fact that what was supposed to be walleye fish guts was not walleye fish guts. When you cut open a walleye, you expect to see walleye stuck entrails, guts. And that's what Paul is showing us here about the substance, the guts, the entrails of Christian affection, except it smells a whole lot better. The substance, the entrails of Christian affection 
is very simply the love of Christ Jesus manifested in the love of the believer toward other people. The reality and the authenticity of Christian love and Christian affection is found in this fact that it is the love of Christ Jesus put on display. There is no need to manufacture or to conjure up feelings simply to know the love of Christ and to manifest that same love is all that is required of us. And so when you are lacking in your affection for others, you ought simply to return and reflect on the love of Jesus, his compassion, his generosity to you, and his endless, his faithful love for you. Because his love is the very substance of all Christian affection. Ephesians 5, 2 puts it this way. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Grace on campus, would we, springing forth from the soil that is the common and shared experience of the grace of God, cultivate this kind of affection for one another that is the real deal, the authentic love of Christ flowing from our hearts and coursing through our veins and flowing into the lives of other people. That is the substance of Christian affection. And thirdly, we need to see in this passage the supplication of Christian affection. The supplication of Christian affection. The letter here at this point shifts slightly as Paul does continue to express his affection for the Philippian believers, but now he is showing in his supplications for them, in his prayers for them, that same joy and care and affection. For Paul, here in verses 9 through 11, the natural consequence of Christian affection is prayer. The natural consequence is prayer. You see, if you think rightly, and if you feel rightly about others who are also in Christ, the intrinsic reflex is prayer. The, the built-in impulse of the beating heart of Christian affection toward others is to get on your knees in prayer on behalf of others. Look at verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the, to the glory and praise of God. Here in these three verses, we see that Christian affection is not affection for affection's sake, but affection is for the building up of the body of Christ, uh, the building up of the church. You see, Christian affection isn't just feeling the warm fuzzies. This isn't some emotional gratification that makes us feel more unified only. This isn't just some self-assurance that because it feels right, it must mean that we check the box of the responsibility we have to love. Christian affection isn't just a fire stoked to warm our own hearts. It is fuel for prayer 
turning to God to plead for the growth and development of others. While in our self-centeredness, we want to be the godliest, most mature believer in the room. The humble, prayerful affection that we see in Paul's sharing his prayer here in these verses seeks the best of others. It's the kind of humility and gentleness and thoughtfulness that would pray, Lord, by the grace of God, would this brother be a better disciple than I would ever be? God, you have gifted him in so many ways, and he's a couple years younger, but God, would you grow him beyond even what I've seen in my own life? This is the kind of humility that would pray, God, as I see you work, I hope and I pray that this sister will have far greater kingdom impact and wider kingdom impact than I ever will. Praise God. Praise you, oh God, for what you have already done in this sister's life. It's the kind of other-centeredness and humility that Paul captures here. This sort of affection is so alien to our self-focused hearts, sadly. But it's exactly what Paul is saying Christian affection looks like and feels like and thinks like and prays like. Christian affection has a confident belief that God is working in the lives of other believers. And it humbles itself in prayer, asking that God would work still more. I hope you see the the interplay here between confidence and humility already, Uh, two things that ironically are best friends in Philippians. That there is a confidence in what God is doing, and yet a humility regarding one's own self and one's own role in God's work. A confidence, a focus on the importance of what God is doing uh, for gospel progress, and yet a humility, a putting off of self-importance. Christian affection is marked by this kind of radical self-abandonment and others-mindedness. It's characterized by seeking the good and the growth of others, earnestly praying for and confident in God of what he might do in the lives of those around us. And so we ought to pray like Paul prays here, uh, desirous of the growth of our brothers and sisters. Now, this is growth in love at the core, but love that is accompanied by two very important things. Look again at verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. This is requesting of God that he would stoke the fire of Christian affection and fan into flame the very love of the Lord Jesus in others. And along with that, knowledge of him and ability to discern between right and wrong, and between wise and unwise, and between good and better, and better and best. It's what one commentator calls 
intelligent and discriminating love. This isn't just love on its own. Uh, God, I pray that these brothers and sisters would just love more. This is prayer that asks God to grow people in love, but accompanied by knowledge and by discernment. So this isn't just love on its own. It's not also knowledge on its own, and it's not also discernment just on its own. It's the perfect complement of these three pillars of the Christian life. Just think about how many pitfalls there are with any one of these core principles. If we take any one of them on its own, I think you may, as I do, see these kinds of things in your own life. If we elevate and focus only on our love, at least from our perception of others at the behest of the truth, such that others aren't pointed to Christ, what good is that? Or if we, in the name of love, in what we think is most loving, uh, think that we should say everything about a situation. Uh, 100% honesty is best. If I just tell this other person everything I think about them, that must be most loving, because then they'll just know everything. Or if, in the name of love, we think that we should just be involved in everybody's business with the kind of love that Paul is praying for, for these believers. There is a knowledge and a discernment that would use the, the, the truth of God's word and the discernment of what is appropriate and what is helpful and what is beneficial in the lives of other people. Some of us have a tendency to elevate a depth of theology. Everything is about convictions, 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 such that nobody else could ever measure up to how many convictions you have and how supposedly deep they are. Others of us love discernment. And we carve out an island on Twitter that is so small it doesn't even fit you. And so none of these things in Paul's prayer and in the reality of our lives as Christians can stand on its own. A love must be accompanied by knowledge and must be accompanied by discernment. We must see here in this verse and believe this is how God works as we are formed from glory to glory into the image of Christ. It's through love with knowledge and with discernment. It's truth in love lived out in a life of worship in community alongside fellow imperfect yet restored image bearers and all enveloped in grace. It's a community growth project. And so our prayers must reflect that. Our prayer is that God would grow in others this perfect combination of character, love, and knowledge and discernment. Now this love and, and knowledge and discernment aren't just an end in and of themselves. Look at verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Paul's prayer and our prayer for one another ought to be that filled with the gospel fruit that is love and knowledge and discernment that we are able to and that we actually do approve what is excellent. You see, that we, that we actually discern and choose to live out 
What's in our head and in our hearts is what Paul has in mind. Uh, that God would grow us in the character and ability to love more deeply and know more fully and discern more wisely is so that we would live lives filled with that which is excellent, that which is approved of God, that we would make wise choices and live holy lives, not just in our heads and in our hearts, but in reality. And in approving what is excellent, we will be, as Paul says here in verse 10, pure and blameless for the day of Christ. This here is the primary genre of content that we ought to be praying for one another, out of affection for one another. I mean, keep praying that you get A's and keep praying that things go well and keep praying that you get enough sleep, but doesn't this passage help us to see that our affections should lead us to share and ask questions of each other and pray for one another in specific and directional and significant areas of growth in each other's lives? I think that's what Paul is pointing to here. Most of what we feel for one another and think of one another and pray for one another ought to be spiritual realities that become actual realities that our brothers and sisters would know and love God and discern the will of God and then live it out. That ought to be our prayer more often than not. Sometimes I think if we're honest, it's not even that we're not being honest or open or specific enough. I think sometimes what gets in the way is our judgmental hearts that is putting distance between us and everyone else. So we're not even close to wanting to pray for our brothers and sisters. It's our desire only, away from everybody else, to be growing fastest or in a unique way that nobody else can. Me and my Bible in the corner, I'm just growing. And so if we pray in those cases, it's usually about us. Our pride is obvious in our competitive, comparing, condescending attitude sometimes. It ought not to be so. Because notice here in Paul's example, in these verses, the absolute absence of any spirit of competition or comparison. This, in Philippians 1, 9-11, is purity and integrity and humility within the body of Christ. True Christian affection reflecting the selfless love of Christ and then manifested in prayer for one another. This is the supplication of Christian affection. There is one final and brief observation we need to make about Christian affection, and it's this. The security of Christian affection. The security of Christian affection. This isn't from any one verse, but it's from the passage as a whole. You see, when Christian affection is growing and abounding in you and in those you pray for, it is evidence 
it is proof of the genuineness of your faith. It is safety and security. It is assurance that chapter 1, verse 6, God's good work is happening in your life. I think it's important to see the security, the, insur- the, the assurance, the encouragement that Christian affection provides. Uh, layer upon layer of it here in this passage. Uh, Christian affection is this productive cycle of spiritual lifeblood in the community of faith. You see, the soil of grace produces Christian affection, and Christian affection gives way to prayer, and prayer by the power of God leads to abounding love and knowledge and discernment in people's lives, and this kind of gospel character leads to excellent and holy living, and in such living is the Fruit of righteousness. And that fruit of righteousness, as Paul says, to the praise and glory of God, is fruit that is natural, normal, and only possible for those who truly know and follow Jesus. That is the security of Christian affection. That when we grow in the way that we think of and feel about others in the church, it leads to the praise and glory of God, the fruit of righteousness in our lives and in the lives of others. You see, the fruit of righteousness here isn't earning or achieving the blamelessness on that last day that we looked at a few weeks ago, so to be worthy of the kingdom on our own merit. We are not pure and blameless because we've made ourselves so. This is being, look at verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. It's all of grace. It's an excellent and fruitful life. Evidence of God's good work in your life. His work in making you pure and blameless, worthy of the kingdom. Romans 8, 29 and 30 is often referred to as the golden chain of salvation. Turn there because you, you should see it today. Why not? Romans 8 is such a helpful chapter, but these two verses are this golden chain of salvation in which God calls those who are his own to himself and completes the work. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Romans 8, 29 and 30 is the golden chain of salvation, God's redeeming work but from a divine perspective. It's what God does and what God sees in his own redemptive work. There, in these two verses, is incredible clarity and surety in heavenly realities. It's security and and assurance that we are saved and will be glorified. Well, as we think about Philippians 1, 
verses 9 to 11 especially. That is also a golden chain, but of human perspective, of Christian experience. It's security and assurance of God's good work in the believer's life, but through a human lens. And so the life of the Christian, when filled with the kind of Christ-like affection, it is a life of sincerity and integrity, and it is secure in Christ. And so Great Grace on Campus, pursue this kind of Christian affection. Also, at the time that I was in college, there was a brother in Grace on Campus, a friend of mine, some of you would call maybe an acquaintance, that kind of guy, and he, every single week, would, with his cargo shorts and stenographer's notebook, you know, the kind with the spiral on the top that you got to really look for in the bookstore to find, and his number two pencil tucked behind his ear, he would every week, hover and hover and hover until you were done with your conversation with that somebody after GOC. And he would approach and ask, hey, how can I pray for you? Do you have any prayer requests this week? And I think back then, and I think you might think of Unfortunately, people this way sometimes now, I would get annoyed. I would think, what is this guy doing? I mean, without ceasing, this guy is bothering me and asking me. I had got the same prayer requests as last week. How uncool. Well, years later, now, as I look back at that time and can only now realize, in this brother, in this, this brother in Christ's heart, was a faithful and genuine affection and a humility and, and a faithfulness and a faith in this brother's soul that would lead him to do this. I think sometimes when we think about Christian affection, we think about prayer that comes from our Christian affection, our love for others, it can seem so uncool. I've got so many other things to do, so many other places to eat, so many other places to be, but would we devote our lives uh, to loving one another and then therefore being on our knees before the Father, asking that he would grow in incredible ways and in a multiplicity of ways the others around us who are also in Christ. Would our love along with knowledge and discernment abounds more and more in this ministry? Would we be a ministry, Grace on Campus, defined by Christian affection rooted in the soil of grace and manifested in Christ-like affection, devoted to prayer and Therefore, safe and secure, growing together by the hand of God's 
good work in our lives.